Well, good morning, everybody. You know, this morning um, is a little different, but really it's the same, isn't it? We're here to worship. And we're here to do things that are going to glorify God. And so maybe we could get a little less feedback. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, the concern would be the feedback. (laughs) Well, this morning... With the message, we're going to really continue with with what the theme has been, frankly, the, this theme of transformation. We've been talking about transformation, believe it or not, since the first of the year. So isn't it the end of May? It's the end of May, and we're continuing to talk about this, this theme of transformation because it's important. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the text. We're going to take a look at some tests, and we're going to take a look at the testimony. Perhaps even your testimony as to where we draw the line with being all in. All in. You have some scripture references there, I think, in your in your bulletin. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 16. That's the text we're going to begin with this morning. Matthew 16, and I think your bulletin says verse 23. We're actually going to start in verse 21. Let's pray first. Lord. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your, your holy, your inspired, and your inerrant word, God. That through the power of the person of the Holy Spirit in this place, God, we just want to welcome you in, Lord. That your will would be done here this morning, God. And Lord, we just love you and we just seek really to glorify your name in all that happens in this place this morning. Amen. Before we read this text in verse 21 of Matthew 16, I think it's important to understand the context. Context is, is really important, isn't it, as we're looking at Scripture? And so Jesus here in the context is explaining to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Not that he should or not that something might get in the way and that he might but that he must go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the religious leaders there and then be crucified and then raised to life on the third day. Now, during this gathering of his disciples, Peter was there, of course, and he asked Jesus, or Jesus asked Peter, actually, he says, who do you say that I am? He asks Peter this question directly. Now, I think he asked that question because there was a lot of talk around town about who this Jesus was, right? And so Jesus, during his ministry on earth, was going around and doing all kinds of things. There was a lot of ruckus when people were trying to figure out who Jesus was. And I think Jesus wanted to ask Peter directly, Peter, who do you say that I am? Now, if you know anything about Peter, you know that he has a tendency to stick his foot in his mouth. That's Peter's M.O. So let's pick up the story right there. Matthew 16. Let's start reading in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Now, this wasn't very good news for his disciples, was it? 
I mean, these guys have been following him around, and he tells them that he's going to go and be killed. And I think it was especially bad news for, for Peter because you've got to love old stick-my-foot-in-my-mouth Peter because look at what he does. You see, Peter wanted nothing to do with that message. Nothing to do. So we're going to see here that Peter actually rebukes Jesus. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, never shall this ever happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, why? Why would Peter rebuke Jesus for saying this? Well, see, I think it's because Peter had this thing flipped upside down. It was it was backwards. And so Peter tells him, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But look at the paradox. The paradox is that first Jesus is acknowledged by Peter as Lord. Peter acknowledges his lordship, not once, but twice. But then he wants to impose his own will on Jesus. Jesus had a really interesting response, though. Look at verse 23. Powerful. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Are you kidding me? Get behind me, Satan. He says, then you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Now, I think perhaps with all the best of intentions, Peter wasn't a bad guy, was he? He's a disciple. He's following Jesus. But with all the best intentions in the moment, Peter might have been thinking, hey, I'm all in for Jesus. There's no way I'm going to let this happen to him. Now, of course, we're not exactly sure what Peter was thinking. But it's clear from the text that Peter, in that moment, intended to exert his will over the will of God. Holy cow. I mean, seriously, have you ever done that? Come on, have you ever done that? (laughs) I have. I certainly have. Now, I'm pretty sure Peter was not expecting Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan. I'm pretty confident of that. But you see, Peter had the order wrong. The order was all wrong because then Jesus addresses the rest of his disciples, not just Peter, but the rest of the crew, and he wants to clarify the order. Check this out. Verse 24. We're very familiar with this verse. Jesus turns to the rest of his boys and he says, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, don't make a mistake here. Taking up your cross and following Jesus has nothing to do with us carrying some kind of a burden around for him. You see, when he said that, these guys knew full well what he was talking about. You see, Taking up his cross was about dying. Most likely they were stunned. They were stunned because Jesus said, this was a radical message. He said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to die. The message really was dying to yourself. He had just talked to Peter who had tried to exert his will over the will of God. And he says, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to die to your will, your plans for the express purpose of following Jesus, which is what they were there to do. Interesting. So whose will was Peter concerned with? It certainly wasn't God's will. It was Peter's will. The question then is, who's following who? 
Who is following who? You see, I think that many of us in the church today, with the best of our intentions, we think we're following Jesus. We think we're following Jesus. But the reality is, I think that we're a lot like Peter sometimes. And we're really asking Jesus to follow us. We've flipped the gospel. We've flipped it. See, we call Jesus Savior and Lord, don't we? But then we don't submit and we don't surrender. We call Him the King of Kings. We call Him the Lord of Lords. And then we just, poof, we kick Him off the throne. (sighs) We make our own best laid plans. Our plans. And then we say, hey, Jesus, can you come along? It's like we put Him in the back seat. We don't even let Him drive. But I can relate to Peter, can you? I can just so relate to Peter. I think like him, many in the church that are in transformation, see they're bought in to Jesus, but they're not sold out. And you see, there's a big difference. Because we've been looking at transformation. We have to look at it biblically, don't we? We've been looking at it biblically and we've been looking at this process now for 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 weeks now, and we've been looking about at it in terms of being really in for Jesus. But do we need to be all in or sold out? We've been looking at 12.2 in Romans as a, as a launching point where Paul tells us not to be conformed, what? To the pattern of this world, but, be to, but to be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Of course, we haven't stopped there in the renewing our mind part in the past few weeks. Because you see, if we just stopped with the renewing our mind part, that's just a message of accumulation. How much more do we need to accumulate anyway? See, accumulation isn't bad in and of itself, is it? But accumulation, I think, is only half in at best. The question then becomes, does the word of truth just penetrate your head? Or does it go to your soul? To your very soul? See, because we can go to church every Sunday for the rest of our lives. And we can go to every Bible study that's offered up, can't we? And we can do all of that and never decide to go all in for Jesus. We can become so familiar with following all the churchy rules that we never actually decide to follow Jesus. We really like the renewing our mind part. But the actual living it part, you see, the taking up your cross part, that part that costs you something, yikes. It's a simple message that Jesus gave. But not an easy one, amen? It's just not easy. But it's a choice. It's a choice. So let's take a look at two examples in Scripture because there are perfect examples of Scripture in Scripture of people that were deciding to follow Jesus. And they had to make the decision to count the cost to see if they were all in. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. I remember when I first started reading a Bible that I had a very strong opinion about, although I had never actually opened it and read it. Um, 
I started reading this Bible as, as I was a seeker myself. And I had been trying all kinds of things. I had gone into metaphysics. I had gone into uh, world religions of all kinds. And the Bible was pretty much the last resort for me. But I bought this Bible. This one, actually. Uh, still got it. It still works. So I bought that Bible and I started reading it. And like, um, I like to read. So I picked it up and started reading in the beginning in Genesis. Because that's how you read a book. You start at the beginning. And I was blown away. Because I started reading Genesis and I was reading about the creation story. Well, that was interesting. I think I had heard a little bit about the creation story before. That wasn't really big news. But then there was murder and incest and prop prostitution and there was floods and there was lying and there was deceit and there was drunkenness and it was in the Bible. I was like freaked out because there it was. And I think I can relate. I mean, I don't think, you know, not to the prostitution and the that part. I couldn't relate to that. But I was living in lying, deceit and drunkenness. And that book had something to say about it. I was amazed. But in particular, I was amazed at this story of Abraham. I remember distinctly 20 years ago, I got to this story about Abraham and I remember that there was a test and Abraham was being tested. And I remember the first thing thinking, why this God that I'm seeking? I think I was thinking him at the time. Why would God test anybody? I hate tests. I'm not good at tests. I don't know. I don't know if it was a test. I don't know if it was the extreme nature of the test. I don't know if it was maybe the father-son relationship in this story of Abraham and Isaac that attracted me in my own walk with my dad. I don't know what it was, but I do remember the story was compelling, and I remember reading it several times before I moved on. Genesis 22.1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, so we see the purpose. Here's God's purpose. It's a test, clearly. There's no question about it. We know exactly what God's purpose is, and that's good. But what about Abraham? You see, God doesn't tell Abraham it's a test. God tells us it's a test right there in Scripture. So the key is in this story about looking where Abraham was coming from in terms of being all in. Let's look at the story from his perspective, shall we? We know it's a test. Verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go up to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. What? Can you imagine that? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes here for just a second. And I could just imagine Abraham saying, say what? I mean, you know, could you repeat that, God? You want me to do What? But what does Abraham do? Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, and took him, and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now, I have no idea what time of day it was that God was having this conversation with Abraham. And I don't know what Abraham was thinking. But what we do know is that he got up early the next morning which to me denotes that it was a little earlier than he would normally set his alarm. He got up early. And 
he began the preparations. See, there was no questioning God. He didn't make any disparaging comments. He wasn't muttering under his breath. He didn't question God. He didn't even pray about it. Abraham got up early to be obedient to God's command. Looks like an all-in moment, doesn't it? I mean, is that like an all-in moment or what? He's good to go. But you see, he's got this journey to take. He's going to Moriah. He's got three days to think about it. God ever spoken to you and then gave you time to think about it? Hmm. Abraham had time to think about it. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, three days have passed. Three days with their supplies and the donkey and the servants. And he says, here we are. But we're given nothing in the text to actually tell us or indicate what was going through Abraham's mind. What must he have been thinking? What was his emotional state? What was he feeling? He knew where he was going and what he had been called to do, but what was he feeling? Sometimes I just don't feel like doing what I ought to do. I don't know what he was feeling, but can you imagine? But look what he does. Look what he does. After the three-day walk, they get close to Moriah and he tells his servants to hang tight. Me and the boy, we're going over yonder and we're going to worship. He tells them they're going to worship. Did you catch that? You see, sacrificing his son, following the command of God to Abraham was an act of worship. That's powerful. Even though he knew it meant sacrificing his only son. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up. I'll bet he did. For the first time, Isaac speaks up, and he says to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham answered. I like that. Abraham always said yes. The fire and the water here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on their way. Now, can you imagine the tension between father and son here? Isaac is saying, Dad, I'm pretty familiar with this sacrificial system of things, but I'm not seeing the lamb. He has no clue. Isaac does. He has no clue. So first Abraham responds to God in obedience, and then Isaac responds to his father in obedience. And there's a lot of obedience going on, isn't there? There's a lot of obedience going on here. So Isaac speaks up. Now remember, Isaac's got the wood on his back. Abraham is carrying this thing full of coals to start the fire, and he's got this big old hanging knife. I don't know how big it was, but I like saying hanging, so I like to say big old hanging knife. But you see, just because we know how this story ends up, 
Remember, we're looking at it through Abraham's eyes. He doesn't have a clue. He's just walking in obedience, isn't he? Why? Because God told him to. Amazing. How does Abraham respond to Isaac's question about the land? God will provide. Abraham says God will provide. Now, here we have a clue, don't we? The first clue in the text about what might happen. You see, because all of a sudden... But don't go there yet. Because I know many of you have read ahead. Don't go there yet. Because we might have missed in verse 4 what Abraham might have been thinking when he said, you guys hang tight. The boy and I are going to go. And then we will come back to you. Did you catch that? You see, I see Abraham's anticipation that God was going to provide. But he didn't know, did he? In obedience, he was walking that way and he did not know. But he fully anticipated and he trusted God. And he was going up the mountain to kill his son. That's crazy, isn't it? Verse 9. Then they reached the place God had told them about. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he takes the knife. Got that in your mind? His son is laying on the altar. And he takes out the knife to slay his son. I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. But there it is. Do you see it? Do you see Abraham? Do you see Abraham's all in this? You see, Abraham is all in. He has the knife in his hand. Isaac is laying on the altar. He's had three days to walk through the desert to think about it. And he's going forth. Hard to imagine it from Abraham's perspective. Because I can't hardly imagine it from my own. I can't imagine. But there it is. He's about to thrust the knife into his one and only son. And then at the last dramatic second, look what God does. He intervenes, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he says. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to harm him. Now I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your son from me, your one and only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. We know the rest of the story now, don't we? He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And I love this part. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain, the Lord will provide. You see, Abraham here was all in from the get-go. From the get-go, he was all in. He anticipated God would provide. But his faith was tested. Amen? It was tested. Abraham trusted God completely. Does that make you think? He trusted Him completely. You see, there was no intellectual ascent that he went through in in determining whether he was going to be trusting of God. He didn't do that. He was just willing in faith. He was willing and he completely trusted 
God, even without knowing what the outcome was going to be. You see, the power, not to mention the drama of this story, is that Abraham was willing. He was just willing. He was not only all in. This is a man, biblically here, that was sold out. That's the difference. From the beginning, he was sold out. See, it wasn't about Abraham, was it? It wasn't about Abraham. What a testimony, man. Does that guy have a testimony or what? I'm telling you, this guy's got a testimony. Now, I hope you're inspired by that. I really hope you're inspired. But more than that, my prayer is, frankly, that you're convicted. (laughs) I hope you're convicted. Why? Why conviction? You see, because I've been inspired by a lot of things. But inspiration tends to fade, whereas conviction, conviction will flavor the entirety of your life if you're convicted. But by contrast, in order to understand this all in this, we have to look at somebody else in Scripture that had the same kind of opportunity. You see, he had an opportunity that was an encounter with Jesus Christ. Turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a man that had to make a decision. And oh, what a different outcome than Abraham's. Chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. He was enthusiastic, too. He ran on over there. There was Jesus. He ran up to him, fell on his knees. See, but unlike Peter, who acknowledged the lordship of Jesus, what did this guy do? He ran up to him and he asked him, good teacher. You see, he didn't know who Jesus was. There's Jesus, God in the flesh, standing in front of him. But you see, he didn't know. But he wanted that question answered, didn't he? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we don't know a lot about this guy. We know he was young and we know that he was rich. And we know that he was a ruler or some kind of a high official. We're not told, but the other Gospels tell that to us. And we notice that he falls on his knees, which was certainly an acknowledgement that Jesus had at least the authority to answer his question. He presumed, didn't he, that Jesus had the answer. And it was a great question. But he asked it in entirely the wrong way. Because he was noticing... Here, I don't know if you noticed it, but I noticed it. He asked it in a very works-oriented way, didn't he? He says, what must I do? But that wouldn't have been unusual. Because in the Jewish culture, it was all about what they could do, wasn't it? It was all about keeping the law. It was all about following the rules. It was all external. But Jesus didn't answer his question immediately. Because he had a question of his own first. I love this part. Now remember, this guy didn't know who Jesus really was, but Jesus says, verse 18, Why do you call me good? Don't you love that? Why do you call me good? He says. Jesus answered in that way. He says, No one is good except God alone. 
Then he drops the hammer. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Hmm. Right to the heart of this rich young man he goes. Jesus gave him kind of the reader's digest condensed version though, didn't he? Because I think he knew this man well. Right after telling him that no one is good except God alone, he gave him the condensed version of the commandments that this young man said that he had been following. I love it. Enter the gospel of grace. (laughs) That's where it starts. You see, because this young man wasn't good enough. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Nobody is good enough. God is good all the time. God alone is good. Yeah. God alone is good, right? You can't do anything to earn eternal life. But that's what he was asking. What must I do? Check out verse 20. He says, see, he's not convinced yet. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. I'll bet he was smiling. He was happy. Ah! See, my guess is that what this guy decided in his mind in advance was by proclaiming that he had kept this condensed version of the law, that he was really expecting Jesus to say, way to go. Awesome, man. That's fantastic. Yeah, you're probably like all in. But that's not what he said. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he just loved him. It's because Jesus saw his sincerity in the question and he knew that he was a seeker, but he was sincerely seeking the answer to that question, wasn't he? And he, I think he was feeling pretty good about himself, too. I've kept all those. <sighs> he had been faithful to the law, at least the condensed version of it. But I'm wondering, because you see, this man surely knew about the whole 613 laws that the rabbis had added. And I'm wondering if he was asking the question because he was worried that the condensed version was fine. But it was all the rest of them he was having trouble with. And so he wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life because he was struggling with the full 613 laws. But here comes the test. Verse 21, Jesus tells him, dude, he didn't really say dude. I said dude. But what Jesus said was, hey, there's only one thing you lack. I'll bet that got his attention. He said, awesome, there's only one thing I lack. Jesus said, now go sell everything, everything you have. Give to the poor. Mexico? Haiti, Dominican Republic, Africa. That's what comes to my mind. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And there, then you will have treasure in heaven. There's his eternal life question right there. But he didn't finish there. He said, then come follow me. 
So like Abraham, here's this man, and he's standing there, and he has an opportunity for an all-in moment, doesn't he? There it is. It's his all-in moment. And Jesus knows his sensitive soft spot, doesn't he? He knows that this man is all caught up in his wealth and his position and his status and his security and his comfort was all there, tied up in his financial net worth. He was a rich guy. (laughs) There it was. You see, Jesus knew that his treasure was his money. His God was his money. And then look at what happens next, very predictably. At this answer that Jesus gave him, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. He just went away. He walks away from Jesus, the very one that could give him what he was searching for. He walks away. And when you walk away from something, Presumably, you're walking to something else, aren't you? We're not told, but my guess is that he presumably walked back to the rules. That was easier. It was easier. Do this. Don't do that. Follow this. Don't do that. Sound familiar to anybody? Following rules and not following Jesus? That's where this guy was living. He went right to his juggler. Because this, this man was all in for his wealth. He was all in for his status, his position. He was all in for all that. But man, he wasn't all in for Jesus, you see. Because, you know, you can only have a relationship with God on his terms. You know that? That's what Jesus was telling him. You can have a relationship with me, but you've got to sell your stuff and follow me. You see, you can have a relationship with God on his terms. You can take it. Or you can leave it, but you can't change it. Frankly, I think that's good news. (laughs) Amen? That is good news. You see, because it wasn't the money that was the heart of this man's problem. It wasn't the money. It was the man's heart that was the heart of the problem. It was his heart. You see, Jesus tested him. It's a test. He went right to his heart. That's what he did. His money and comfort were symptoms. But his heart was the problem. He walked away from the promise. The very promise he was asking about. What must I do? See, he thought eternal life was going to cost him something. Because Jesus knew that His God was His wealth. The truth is, the gospel doesn't cost anything. The gospel doesn't cost anything. But it demands everything. And you see, he was unwilling. The man was unwilling. So what about us? See, there's some hard questions that have to be asked here. What about us? See, sometimes I think we're too Christian to enjoy sin. And we're too sinful to enjoy Christ. Huh? Anyone? See, we've got just enough, Jesus, to be informed. But not enough 
to be transformed. This man wasn't interested in transformation. He wasn't. See, I think sometimes we're really great at accumulating all this stuff. We accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. But when it comes to the appropriating it, the living it, we're not so good at that. Don't hide behind your accumulation. Because unlike Abraham, who was all in, dude, this guy was all in, wasn't he? Abraham was sold out. He was all in. But you see, this man wanted everything that God had to offer without giving anything up. Nothing. He was totally unwilling to take up his cross and follow Jesus. He made the decision. Uh Uh-uh. Too costly. Too much for me. So it's right there in the text. We have the text. We have two men. We got Abraham. Right? We know about Abraham. We have the rich young ruler. We have two tests. But what about the testimonies? What about the testimonies? I think they're clear. See, because I don't think you can have a testimony without a test. Amen? No test. No testimony. They were both tested. They both had a testimony. Abraham, all in, sold out. The other guy, see, the other guy was religious, right? He was a religious guy. But I read Isaiah 29, 13, and I think Isaiah would describe this guy well. Isaiah 29, 13 says, These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Right to the heart, huh? I wonder sometimes if we're really moved by stories of of people that we hear about that are doing radical things for Christ. We, we read about it all the time, don't we? We read about people doing radical things for Jesus Christ. And we look at that and then we never consider for ourselves the taking up our cross and following Him. But we love to hear about the people that are radical for Jesus. Abraham was radical. James makes it clear. We talk about this all the time here in this church. James 1.22. Don't merely be a listener of the word and deceive yourself, but do what it says. Is that a command? That's a command. Why did James say not to deceive yourself and to do what it says? Maybe it's because Jesus said that if you love me, you'll obey what I command. John 14, 15. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. We have the test. We have text. We have testimony. But what about what about you? What about you? What about me? See, most of us are already educated well beyond our level of obedience. Amen? 
No, let me say that again. Most of us are already educated well beyond our level of obedience. You know, see, now that should elicit an enthusiastic amen. Okay. We are. And I'm pretty sure we all have a testimony somewhere between Abraham and the rich young ruler. True? We do. Each of us. You see, and if you're saved and you're in this place today, you have an absolutely beautiful and unique, fantastic salvation testimony that lasts for an eternity to the glory of God. That's testimony. That's a test that was passed. And you were willing. You were willing to accept Christ on His terms. But you can't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It can't. You see, your tests, your transformation, and your testimony, they don't end. They're ongoing, aren't they? Don't stop with your salvation testimony that is beautiful and glorifying to God. You see, because He needs the glory of the rest of your testimony. don't do this often stand up here (laughs) and it can be a challenge Uh, because I think there is testimony and sometimes I think testimony can even come from confession and so I've chosen to do that this morning and it's not easy You see, because first, by way of confession, I have to tell you that, you know, I love this church. I love what I do here. I love Sundays, especially. Don't you love Sundays? I love Sundays. I love the Word of God. I love studying the Word of God. I love to teach the Word of God. I love to counsel. I love to shepherd I love the entire role that God has put me in in this, in this place for the last six years. You see, the problem is, that's a lot of I love that never started with I love Jesus. And I've had to answer my own all-in question lately. All-in for what? Frankly, all-in for whom? Oh, I love Jesus. There's no question about it. But the real question that I've struggled with is, do I love what I do more than I really love the Lord? Is that it? Have I flipped it? I think subtly I've flipped it. I think I love what I do even more than I love the Lord. And I think that I realize that spending a lot of time in Scripture, in the Word of God, dissecting it, left me very little time, frankly. For the scriptures to dissect me. I got it backwards. And to the extent that my zeal for my work here, as opposed to my zeal for my love for the Lord, has negatively impacted any of you over these years in the teaching or the shepherding or anything that I've done, even if it's just up here, I apologize. I'm sorry. 
Because I think that that was the case, you see, and I think the testimony really quite simply is this, that God is good all the time. And I think all the time, God is oh so good. But I don't say that with a cavalier attitude any longer. I just don't. Because the testimony comes from a test of sorts, even for me. I'm uncomfortable even talking about it. And I would counsel you never to be uncomfortable talking about your testimony, especially if it brings glory to God. But it is uncomfortable, isn't it? So some of you know, of course, that just a while back, the test for me came at the hands of a Cadillac in a parking lot. And so that little car accident at the Soul Park Golf Course where two of us got hit by a Cadillac was a life changer. It was a life changer. Who knew, headed on the way to a Bible study, that we would get hit, Timmy Donahue and I, by a friend of ours, a brother in Christ, ran over us in his car. Continue to pray for Tim. He's still unable to walk on his own power. Three and a half months it's been. And although I have very, rec- very little recollection of what happened, I remember a headlight and I remember hitting a windshield. But after that, I don't remember much. I remember, though, a few weeks in, that I had decided that in my strength I was going to get better because who was going to finish First John on Wednesday nights after all? <laughs> who was going to play the drums at church on Sunday? The problem is that, you know, I'd never had a traumatic brain injury before. (laughs) And I think like Isaac, maybe I was clueless. But I wasn't acting like I was clueless. I even remember four weeks in or so, I decided I haven't been in Scripture for a month. I opened up the Scriptures and I started to read. I got three verses in in Ephesians. I got to the end of the third verse. I looked, I'd spent 20 minutes reading three verses and I didn't remember a thing. For the next ten days, I read Scripture every day, every morning. Three verses, the same three verses, seeing if I could remember what it said. And I couldn't remember after reading three verses. I had no recollection. I was stuck. I was speaking slow. Many of you know you came to see me. Thank you. I was speaking slow. I was talking slow. I hadn't any comprehension. He would come and say nice things to me at my house and I'm recovering and you would leave and I would be exhausted and not even remember the next day that you were there. (laughs) Sorry. I came to church. Diana scolded me. But she did it through Tyler. But the only reason that Tyler brought me to church is because I insisted. And I came to church and it was five or six weeks after this accident and I was so overwhelmed sitting in the back not overwhelmed being at church. The experience was so overwhelming for me. I went home. I frankly wept because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I would get well. The neurologist asked me, do you want to get well? Good Lord, right out of Scripture, this man asked me if I wanted to get well. I think I was doing it my own way. I went home, and after telling me, I had to just sit for 
maybe weeks and not do anything to stimulate this brain injury. That's what I did. And I was frustrated. I mean, I was completely frustrated. And that was the breakthrough. By way of confession, God used that frustration of not knowing whether I would ever be able to come back here and enjoy worship to play the drums to teach on a Wednesday night to be loved by you and I heard him say not literally I heard him say are you done yet? are you just done yet? and I think I was I think I was done I think I'd been broken down and then over and over and over again I heard him say do you trust me? Do you trust me? I thought I did. But all of a sudden I realized weeks into this thing that I was having an all-in moment. See, was I fully surrendered and submitted to God? And to answer that question honestly, because I was speaking to Him, the answer was no. Was I completely trusting God? And again, the answer was no. Had I been calling Jesus Lord and Savior of my life while in some ways asking Him to just frankly follow me? And the answer was yes. So, with the best of all of my intentions, you see, all these things were true. So the all-in moment for me was to just to confess it. Just to confess that and just repent of it. And then, you see what happened? The real healing could begin. See, I thought I had a brain injury. No, I had been injured spiritually and I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. I didn't know if the equilibrium was going to come back. I didn't know if I was going to be able to read. I didn't know any of that stuff. But I can tell you that it really didn't matter. Because after you submit and you just decide that you're going to be surrendered, I mean, you've got to get out of the way. You've got to just surrender. And then when you surrender, you see, then radical things start to happen. And I realized right at that point in time that the freedom in Christ that I always talk to you guys about, I say, you're not going to believe what freedom in Christ really is like when you start living for Him. That's how I realized that I wasn't really living for Him. It was way more about me than it was about Him in some cases. It was a Peter moment for me. I had no idea how much I'd been holding on to God. I thought it was all in. And I was intellectually and I was practically, but not experientially. I had not experienced Jesus. You see, because Jesus, Jesus, what He wanted was He just wanted all of me. He wants all of you. That's all He's ever wanted. So maybe you put your faith in Christ. Maybe, maybe you've done that recently. And that's awesome. And you have a testimony. Maybe it's been a decade or two or three or four since you've done that. The question is, are you all in for Jesus? Are you all in for Jesus Christ? You see, because Abraham was, Peter thought he was all in, but like me and maybe some of you, no, it was way more about Peter, frankly, than it was about Jesus. And then, of course, there's that poor rich young ruler. And that guy decided to just walk away from Jesus. He walked away sad. 
So the question really remains, individually, collectively, guys, are we all in for Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we want to call You Lord, we want to call You Savior. We want to call You King of Kings, God. And forgive us, Lord, if we're living our lives half in. I pray now, God, that You would show us, each one of us, individually, God, You would show us what all in looks like. Where's that line? Show us, God, help us to learn how to surrender completely to You. We've got to get out of the way. We need, Lord, Your help to do that. That's a supernatural occurrence. We can't do it on our own. I know I've tried. We just want all of us. So, Lord, teach us how to submit. Teach us, Lord, to be like Abraham, where we don't mutter under our breath. We don't ask questions. But because of who You are, And what you've done for us, Lord, show us how to just take up our cross and follow you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Sorry to follow. Um, As we uh, prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want to just read some scripture out of Hebrews. For by for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made whole. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, "This is the covenant I will make with them." After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Um. As the elements are passed out, we take the Lord's Supper to remember, to remember Jesus. Um, When he had that first supper with his disciples, he said to them to do this in remembrance of him. And we do this to remember Jesus, to remember what he has done. Um, And as the elements are being passed out, I would like to ask each of you to just stop to close your eyes and to do a couple of things. One is to do, to deal with what Bill just 
just uh, shared, what just taught us to deal with that question. Are you all in? Are you sold out to Jesus? And talk to him about that in your own heart. And a way that you might do that is to, to talk to him about things that are different in your life because of him, because he is in your life. To say to him, Lord, you are the light in my life. You are the rock when my life is difficult. You are the truth. So just take a moment as the elements are being passed out. Close your eyes and talk to the Lord. And remember who Jesus is and remember what he has done for you and for me. sent your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in flesh, who chose to give his life, to die for each of us, the sword of our sins, and in rising again, to give us the opportunity to be sold out, Lord, to give our lives fully to die ourselves for you. So Lord, use the word, use our time, use this worship together, Lord, to, uh, to make us, to make a difference in our hearts.